0: I suppose my earliest reference to my personal involvement with the soil is using it to make mud cakes with the doll's head, I think. <laughs> and, you know, liking to play with its London clay stickiness. Watching my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, cultivate, cultivate the soil in our back garden and transforming it into sweet corn and squash and various other things. It's the soil that absorbs all the pollutants that we um, unfortunately spread throughout our different atmospheres. It's trodden upon. And if I should quote my daughter's rap, trodden upon, she says, cut by spades. (laughs) We take our feet for granted and we take that which comes into contact with it um, for granted assuming it will go on forever and it will always be this capital asset we have to be a lot more intentional about how we're relating to it and not only in a way to regard it as a dry asset but as something which carries our histories
1: find out who this is and hear more about soil later in the show but first hi.
2: Hello it's Farmerama the 23rd month in a row that Joe and I and the rest of the team are bringing you a half hour of stories from the smaller scale farming communities around the world.
1: Today we visit a project in Malawi before we're in the Garden of England talking to a farmer about his experience growing sea buckthorn.
2: And we have a special feature from a podcasting pal.
1: But first, back to that wise voice we heard welcoming you at the beginning of this episode. Mama Dee was one of the speakers at the first ever Soil Hack gathering a few weeks ago. People met to discuss soil in all its aspects, from its science to its history, as well as practical tips, and we'll be sharing some of this in future episodes. Mama Dee talked about how she believes care for the soil can reflect an awareness and respect for our culture's relationship with the land. So,
0: I'm Mama Dee. And I'm in the middle of curating a project called Community Centred Knowledge. Soils evolve at the same pace as humans who live with it do. So if soil were to be an indicator of our level of civilization, what would it say? We cannot compartmentalise the soil into the inorganic and organic ingredients of it. And we can't measure aspects of it in isolation. The socio-economy, if you like, of the soil needs to be understood um, together with its biochemical properties, because these are so related. My belief is that the knowledge that we need, that we need to apply, is centred within the, the various communities that inhabit these islands. It can be brought to the fore by encouraging people to remember it, to recall it, to share it and to make sense of it collectively so that it can be a source of strength and resilience for the times which lie ahead. Mm. I have formulated indigeneity, being indigenous, to mean that which is generated from the land. So we were talking about the soil, so the soil being the, the womb lining, if you like, of Mother Earth. What, how, how can we get in touch with that which is generated from from this soil? We grow food on it, but not all the food there are a lot of the food that we consume is grown in different countries in the world, and we have the people from those different countries here in britain there 's a, a trans indigenous <laughs> a sense of soil being something that covers lots of parts of the globe with whom britain has had contacts in time and space and so a respect for all of those soils because after all we just have the one planet there's a lot of talk of localism but what does that mean in terms of a respect for where one lives in 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 an inclusive way so how are we treating um, our soils with imported um, products? How are we treating our soils with imported knowledge? Often not the knowledge that has come from the community that has lived on that land for a long time. So the some kind of respect for what comes out of that land and making uh, linkages between what comes out of that land with what comes out of other lands from which we eat and to make a global sense of it so that it's integrated and more meaningful and relates to all the, the people who eat what we call food. Um, I was really happy this weekend that the, the various workshops weren't only dealing with a particular rather... Um, rationalistic, right-brained kind of way of approaching what the soil is and what it means to us. But, you know, made attempts to look at it in various more kind of... Um, to contrast, I suppose, left brain, more old brain, uh, imaginative, historical, socioeconomic ways of thinking about it. And I certainly hope that Soil Hack continues in this vein and doesn't get overtaken by what we refer to as science, which is just one form of knowledge.
1: Okay, Abby, so what's all that about then? Maybe you could um, explain to us the workshop that you were involved in when you met Mama Dee.
2: So Mama Dee put on a workshop which everyone involved kind of, I, I was liking, and we had to enact and really experience what it's like to be part of the woodland ecosystem.
1: Hold on, you were lichen to what?
2: (laughs) I was actually lichen. So I spent a lot of my time at the bottom of a tree. But there was a beautiful point in the exercise workshop where, for whatever reason, everyone died, all the creatures and all the living things, and we all returned to soil. It was quite an amazing experience. Um, The part to it that I found really interesting was actually that it it kind of... It felt like practising death, and it, it had this kind of uh, sort it made you feel a little more relaxed about death because you realize that actually when we die we all become and return to the soil so it was a very kind of uh, wild and um interesting experience and it definitely sort of changed my relationship to soil because i realized you know that's where that's where we came from and that's where we'll return to
1: I think it sounds great if it, if it worked and made you think about soil in a different way. Um, what I'm fascinated is in, because everybody got to choose what they were and why you chose lichen.
2: <laughs> it wasn't like that. There were just little post-it notes um, of all different things in the woodland and you just kind of picked one and I did, I, I did sort of choose lichen because I really like lichen. It's a really beautiful thing and you only find it in areas where there's not much pollution. And, um, and also I, I like its serenity and the peacefulness of Lichen.
1: I think what she says is very interesting about the soil sort of reflecting and caring for the different people who make up part of the place that we're living in. I think it's really nice and understanding that, I don't know, these, these new different cultures that make up this country can be also rooted in part of the same thing and that's a combination of different plants and different people and different ways of life all come from the soil.
2: You know, to really get in touch with the fact that we all are part of the soil is is actually quite empowering, quite powerful. Mm-hmm.
1: super excited to hear from the Tayeni project in Malawi, who promote sustainable farming methods there. Isaac Monjo Chavula and Albert Masuku sent us in some recordings to share their experience of the Taieni deep bed farming method.
2: It aims to stop erosion and improve soil fertility by avoiding soil compaction and using deep, wide beds, mulching, agroforestry and companion planting. The Tayeni charity which promotes and teaches the method was set up by lifelong residents of Malawi. They were frustrated by Malawi's reliance on short sighted food aid. So instead, they wanted to develop an approach that's not only truly sustainable, but also much cheaper than food aid drops. Tayeni, by the way, means let's go.
3: The 10th method of agriculture is the bringing together of several well and tested. Methods into a simple and effective common sense approach to agriculture. The steps are decompaction of soils, contouring, protective planting, water containment, manuring, marching, weeding, companion planting, and crop protection. The dead method is now being used by some 3,000 farmers across the country. This is by 2017, which is treble what was the case in 2016. Farmer-to-farmer training means that the technology is spreading far beyond the farmers that TNI staff are reaching. It has also been adopted by several NGOs and more are queuing for training in this method. But why do we have to promote this debate method? There is great misunderstanding in the agriculture world about compaction of soils. In Malawi, and probably in many countries throughout the world, compaction is a hidden cause of famine repeated diggings and uh, with the wall and even the plow and constant working on the soils very often result in compaction being created into a hard pan underneath below 10 15 or 20 centimeters neither the roots or water can penetrate this hard pan and as a result a short dry spell means that the crops fail where still the compacted layer in heavy grains provides a perfect slip layer for the tilled topsoil to be swept away, maybe down here, through erosion. Just last year, an FAO report indicated that about 29 tons of topsoil is lost per hectare per year in Malawi. The training method stops this completely. So the first step above is probably the element that deep-ed is most essential. The other steps, make sure that the ground stays decompacted, improves soil fertility year on year, and provides a huge increase in yields. Farmers have seen this and are queuing in their hundreds to be trained. And that is why I'm appealing to NGO community to support this deep method of farming, because by doing that, we can likely assist these farmers to get out of food and income insecurity. The debate method, once implemented across the country, will alleviate this problem of famine in Malawi and, more especially, make Malawi vibrant again in terms of our economy because it is an agro based economy. Industries depend on crop production and employment depends also on agriculture production. Now, in Malawi, we have very poor food security, like last year. More than 6.5 million people were said to be food insecure. So if all farmers can go the deep bed method, I'm very sure that every household may have adequate food. This deep bed method of farming, we encourage farmers to deep till, to break the headband. So they have to till uh, to about 30 centimeter depth. And that happens in one year. The rest of the years, it depends on how much you know, manure you feed the soils and the, how you, know, you have to avoid as much as possible to step on the deep beds because we, we must have uh, no compaction of soils. So it's because of that hard labor in first year, farmers tend to say, oh no, this method is labor intensive. While we are saying, as long as you nurture your beds, you can cultivate on the beds eternally as long as the soils remain rich and supportive to uh, crop production. So this challenge has to be broken because it's just the attitude of the farmers. My name is Albert Msugu. I'm an extension worker here at Mzimba. Um, How I came to know about 10 bed is in 2015 when uh, Rob called me from Holland uh, that I should go and attend the uh, training for lead farmers in Mzuzu. I went there, I attended for one week. When I came back, I was very interested in what the TN people are doing. So, when I came back, I tried to ask some farmers who were interested to do that. So, we started with just two uh, plots for demonstration. But this year, you see, with this climate change, it started very badly. But our TN beds still strived and they did very well. Most of the farmers now are interested to do TN beds. I'm very sure these people now are at least
1: food secure. To find out more about Tieni, visit tieni.org, T-I-Y-E-N-I dot Thanks also to Bex Kelly, who organized and sent us all these recordings. Farmerama is happy to be supported by Abby's company, Vida Cycle Tech, who've created some really great tools, especially made for independent and small scale farms just like her families, They have two apps. Sector Mentor allows you to easily keep track of what's going on with your crop. And Work Mentor helps you to manage your workers. Farmers around the world are using the apps to care for their olives, vines, blueberries, almonds, agroforestry projects, apples and onions. If you're interested in using the apps, you can find out more on tech.vdacycle.com.
2: Striving to make his low-lying coastal farm economically and environmentally viable, Essex farmer David Eagle has turned to an unusual crop, sea buckthorn. This spiny shrub with bright orange berries is popular in other parts of the world, but still fairly unknown in the UK. That's despite a wide range of health benefits and versatility. Its bark and berries can be used in food, drinks, cosmetics and natural remedies.
1: Here, David and his son Ben explain why they decided to take a step into the unknown, relatively speaking,
4: and started cultivating sea buckthorn. David Eagle, we've been farming as a family, farming here since about the 1880s. I was in the Middle East and basically I got the call to say, Are you interested? It's a very classic dairy farm. The milk board then went, quotas came in, milk price collapsed. We tried to go full pedigree, we went high level American Holstein cows still didn't make any sense finally the cows went in 2002 at the same sort of time there was a document issued by DEFRA regarding the withdrawal of maintenance from uneconomic seawalls which to anybody that doesn't live on the coast sounds completely, you know, what is all this about but if you live... By the sea, and you watch the sea going up and down, that seawall is your life. And because this farm is effectively a low level farm under the seawall, if the seawalls go, we lose 50% of our land. The arable side had become contract farmed, so we didn't have any guys, we didn't have any machinery. Effectively, we got two units, 600 acres. And interestingly, we've got 350 acres outside the seawall. grandfather used to graze it, but sheep can't swim very well, so it's not really something we want to do. But the whole concept of sitting in an era of climate change with sea level rise, with more and more surge tides, with very much the weather is changing into extremes, meant that we had to start thinking about where we were going. There's also the economic factor that... As a family, we can't see how arable farming pays, as purely commodity farming. I think if you're more specialist, if you're organic, that's a different matter. We therefore started to look around at alternative crops. There was a chap called Dr John French, who was then at the World Crop Centre at Rittle College, and he brought down a book of alternative crops. Seabuckthorn came in under the berry crops, and its principal interest for me at the time was the fact that it's used in food, drink, pharmaceuticals and natural cosmetics and veterinary products as well. So it's got a wide range of market. Its principal crop is the berry but it's also the leaf and even the bark has got some really interesting chemicals in it for pharmaceuticals. So as a whole plant it's got a lot of interest. The fact that also it was farmed in 40 different countries meant that there was knowledge about it. The fact that there isn't a market, actually, at that time, I thought, well, you create a market. The model I was looking at was thinking, actually, hemp was a crop which has been developed in East Anglia, has done really, really well, but it was effectively driven by a farmer for 20 years. It took him 20 years to bring that crop to market. And that's how I probably see sea buckthorn being. It just so happened that at that year, 2009, the International Sea Buckthorn Conference was in Siberia at Barnau. It was a week-long conference, and it was being run by the Lissavenko Research Institute for Horticulture for Siberia. And it was stunning. I was sold. I was completely head over heels in love with sea buckthorn. We went through a very steep learning curve... 40 percent of the plants were lost in inverted commerce in 2014 from disease sea buckthorn has a huge capacity to recover so basically i cut the plants down to about a meter high and virtually all of them have come back i suppose we probably lost about 10 percent of the of the stock that went in we got over the disease issue which is a fungal issue by using compost tea using it through 2015 was a slightly tentative process and gradually came to the conclusion that the plants need to be sprayed every month so now they are sprayed from February which is when the plant starts to come into bud or break bud right the way through to harvest our harvest is in July and then we'll start spraying again probably a month after harvest so we're organic in the winter the plants get green waste compost and the combination of the compost with our soil over a period of years hopefully will start to lighten it up. One of the issues about living on the coast is effectively your soil is clay. The exact opposite of what sea wants. But part of the issue about sea is that it seems to have a capacity to adapt to almost any situation. It grows in sand It grows in the deep Siberian black soils and it's growing in clay here. And I suppose one of the weirdest things that came out of one of the conferences was the Chinese spread seabuckthorn seed by helicopter over sandstone in order to get the seabuckthorn to start to rejuvenate soils in those sort of environments. So it is the most amazing plant. The principal problem we've had was with corvids, which is around here for some reason on the coast jackdaws have... Bread phenomenally. Rooks are another problem. They are a highly intelligent bird. They were stealing them dawn and dusk. Traditionally, with cherries and that sort of thing, you put a net over the top. It has been a real trial getting those poles in and the wires up, and as you can see, the nets aren't up yet. Back in February this year, I was at a show, and the people that actually make our compost tea brewer also market an audio bird scaring system it ran for a week and it drove every corvid from this farm this machine can speak speak 10 different bird languages and it broadcasts distress calls and after three or four days of this we switched the machine off and they haven't come back from my perspective this year which is our first crop we're looking at getting it into the london market really just as a trial getting people just to try the taste play with it see what they feel they can do with it I see sea Buckthorn, as I said before, as a 20-year project. 10 years to get the agronomy right, 10 years to build the market. I feel the UK is up for grabs. We're living in a population which is aging. Seabuckthorn is associated with anti-aging. It's associated with skin diseases. It's associated with gastric ulcers. I think. you know, it does things for stamina, as a health product, it's got great things going for it. I'm Ben Eagle. I've recently come back to
5: help Dad on the farm here in Essex. I was previously working in the conservation sector in the west of England, which is a role I miss, but it's a very exciting time to be coming back to the business as well in terms of shaping, helping to shape what's happening moving forward. The North Sea is very much at the forefront of our thinking, and it's a matter of, rather than working against it, which is possibly the tie that we've taken for... The past 50 or so years we're now moving towards a system of trying to think of ways that we can work with it and use it as an asset. About 50% of the farm is at long-term risk from flooding from the sea and so we have to come up with a system where we can work around that. We could maintain all of our seawalls, we could build up our seawalls or we could breach the line. So on a small area of the farm we've breached a 25-metre section of the wall and that is flooded into a three-hectare marshland, which was a very poor grazing marsh before. That is managed in a partnership agreement with Natural England on a 20-year basis, so we're getting payments for that 20-year period. And it has completely transformed the landscape more than we could ever have imagined in terms of the bird life that is coming in. It is returning to that old Essex coastal landscape. It's been enlightening for us and it's been an opportunity that came along that we embraced, but critically, it has a more serious purpose, which is to reduce the pressure on our other walls, Uh, reduce that pressure so it enables us to then strengthen other parts of the wall. So we're managing our wall in context. 20 years in farming isn't, isn't a very long time, and when you're doing something completely new, you need to accept that it's a, probably a two-, three-generation project. We have the benefit that there are other sides of the business. It means that we can experiment. We've moved from a base of absolutely nothing at all with very, very little knowledge of this plant to a stage where we now have a viable crop. We're looking at a harvest for this year with uh, with a growing market. I think certainly that over the next few years we are going to see great changes, both from a policy point of view um, and from a technology point of view, and from a manpower point of view as well. From a small coastal farm perspective, those farms that really embrace the opportunities that we can grasp in terms of direct marketing, in terms of innovative diversification schemes, in terms of innovative crops, in terms of new technologies, It's about moving forward, and I think the fact that everything is moving so quickly now seems a bit daunting, but farmers are really resilient. Of any group of people, of any sector, there isn't one that is more up to the challenges that we face, and we will do it. We need to stick up for ourselves. We need to make sure that we create a framework that we can survive and work in for the future.
2: For more on the plant's fascinating history and properties you can check out the bonus audio on our SoundCloud. We call these shorts. So if you want to hear a bit more about a story we featured on here, then shorts are the place to look.
1: It's lovely to have two generations of the same farming family on the show. And this got me thinking, this is not the first time um, that we've had two generations on the same show. Abby, first off, we've, got, we've had your dad. Mm -hmm. and Nigel, obviously, we've had... Nigel's mum has been on a few times. In fact, Nigel's whole family were on the show.
2: And then we also had um, Teddy and Freddie Brun, talking about the sustainable forest management they do over in Norfolk. I don't know if we have anyone else.
1: But I think it's pretty good going, and it's it's a really nice thing to see, isn't it? Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, really nice, and I guess it's one... in, In a way, it's one of the issues that's very present in the farming world is how is the next generation going to take on um, farming here on out
1: that's really what we're a lot of what we're doing isn't it we're talking to lots of people who are picking up the tractor
2: yeah people who are part of that transition <laughs> inspired by Rama Six months ago, Ben Eagle also started making a podcast called Meet the Farmers. This is a series looking at the day-to-day realities of running a farm in the UK. So far, so Farmerama, but it's not exactly the same. Ben takes one farm per episode and really gets into the detail about what makes the business and people tick. We are keen to support what he's doing and as an introduction, he's let us share a short edit from a recent episode.
1: As this is Farmer we we've chosen Ben talking to his guest about several things close to our hearts. Here, David Lord tells Ben about how he's ended up an avid advocate for no-till methods and what he does in the way of experimentation to work out whether he's on the right path.
5: Hello, and welcome to this episode of Meet the Farmers. And I am at Earls Hall Farm near Claxon on Sea with David Lord, who is an arable farmer and contractor. So, David, thank you for speaking to me today. You're very welcome. Can you start by describing the farm and
6: your business? We're a bit of a mixed group of soils. We've got some light land that we grow some potatoes um, and, and onions on, but the majority of our land is quite heavy. And we're finding as time went on, it was just getting increasingly hard to work the land and achieve what we wanted to do in a, in a sustainable way. And when we looked at it, we're actually we're losing organic matter from our soils, which was the major problem, which was making them so, so hard to work. That highlighted to me that we needed to change our system, which kind of brings us up to the point we're at now.
5: When did you start thinking in
6: terms of no-till? You could call it a perfect storm, I suppose. Typical for, a, for an Essex farm on heavy land, we, we were getting quite a bad blackgrass problem it's a weed that's been around for a long time but as time has gone on that nature can get round most things that you tend to throw at it the weed itself was becoming resistant to many of the chemicals we're trying to use to to control it to the point now that the only chemical we can really rely on truly is glyphosate and obviously you can't put glyphosate on a crop that's growing so you need to integrate that into your into your cropping system The only way you can really do that is by having spring cropping. And the only way you can really have spring cropping on heavy land is to have something growing on the land in the autumn and through the winter to keep the land structured and growing, keep the soil biology going. Um, so the, the whole thing, that the black grass and having spring cropping, that was sort of our main driver and then along with that is that actually it's um, it's a lower cost, lower input way of farming.
5: What soil tests and testing are you carrying out? Are you, for example, looking at how biological activity is being enhanced?
6: I'm quite keen on quantifying what we're doing and seeing the changes as, as we go along. So we've done soil organic matter tests, done a cation exchange capacity, uh, which basically it's just the nutrient holding capacity of the soil and we've also done some micronutrient levels as well and then we can monitor that as we as we go along and and see the changes a lot of our land here at home we're about four and a half five percent organic matter which is nationally quite high anyway Um, but again i was saying earlier that's down to a history of muck and and livestock but on on the other farm we've got organic matters down to one and a half percent so it'll be really interesting to see how that changes and how quickly it changes
5: how many harvests have to go past
6: before you can make a definitive choice of whether you're doing the right thing? <laughs> well, with the harvest we've just had, we had one field of wheat, which was after rape, and we conventionally drilled half of it, which involved a, a disc tine cultivator and then a, a disc drill. And the other half, we put a cover crop in and then drilled it with a with a cross slot. Uh, drilled the same day, same seed rate. And when we came to harvest, they were our two best bits of wheat on the whole farm. The direct-drilled bit was ever so slightly higher yielding than the other one, but really, statistically, there was no difference. And the only other interesting point was the protein was higher on the direct-drilled one. But it wasn't a proper trial, so you can't really draw a definitive conclusion from that. Um, But to me, if we can maintain yields and reduce our reliance on, on inputs and at the same time improve soil health, then I think that's a win. Is the no-till community quite close? It is, yeah. Yeah, I've met a lot of really good, interesting people, learned an awful lot and made a few friends. We all have different ideas about what's right and what's wrong. We have a lot of different discussions. Technology keeps us together. We're, you know, we're quite a close community on on Twitter, and um, we have a few sort of WhatsApp groups and things that all the drill owners get together and discuss different things that we're doing. And then there's, you know, there's the global side of that drill as well. And we, they do a two yearly conference which goes around the world. And they came to this country in the summer last year, and I met some farmers from um, America and New Zealand and Australia and yeah, all over the place. And really interesting seeing the challenges they they have compared to what we have. What would you say to sceptics? Um, come and have a look. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're pretty open about what we're doing. You know, it's really interesting getting down and learning about your soils and seeing how they change and seeing the life that's there. And because I believe it, it's right and it feels right, you know, it's, it's quite a nice experience sharing that with people. That was
2: Ben Eagle talking to Farmer David Lord for the Meet the Farmers podcast. You can find the rest of that episode on iTunes. And maybe that's the same place you listen to Farmerama? On that note, if you do listen to us on iTunes, we would really, really appreciate if you could write us a review. It really makes it all worth it when we hear from you.
1: Or email us, send us a message on Facebook. Give us a call. Farmerama is always a group effort. For this episode, as well as Abby and I, we've had the support of Katie Revel, who um, for the last few months has been absolutely indispensable. Um, She's essentially produced this show with us, but she's in Glasgow, so is not able to join us in the studio.
2: Also, thanks to Ben for being happy to share his show, and to Richard, who's been helping us with social media. And, of course, all of our guests and every one of you for listening. And finally, a special thanks to Gala, Tom and Johnny, who all emailed us or got in touch some way with feedback and kind thoughts.
1: We're looking forward to being back again next month for what will be our two-year anniversary.
2: Woo! so exciting! Well, and we'll have some special things in the pipeline, so do listen in. Yeah, not, not to be revealed yet, Joe.
1: OK, see ya.
2: Tulu